Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris, and again, welcome to Hiawatha Church. If this is your first time or your 50th time, uh, it's great to see you here this morning. Um, my, I am one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and as you uh, probably know, just a couple weeks ago, Peter uh, preached up on a passage just a few weeks back, um, and we get that as part of our, our role here is to preach once or twice a year. And so uh, this is my opportunity and chance to share uh, what God is, uh, is doing here in Genesis 16. But before that, just a little bit about myself and uh, kind of what I do. My nine to five, uh, my, my first part of that has been for the last around 12 years, a teacher. So I teach at a school in Minneapolis called Hope Academy. I teach uh, mainly science with a little bit of math um, on the side, if you will. And this uh, recently I started uh, also working here at, at Hiawatha Church as a part-time children's ministry coordinator. So that's what I do during my uh, main part of the week. Um, I'm also married to my lovely wife, Sarah. And so if you go to the, the next slide there, we have a, a picture here we took. Actually, I can do this because I just agreed to do this. Oh, there we go. Uh, there's us here in the church building. So there's Sarah and me, Luke, and in the front there is Eloise and Kate. Um, and so just a little bit about them to get to know our family if you don't. Um, one is that my wife is, is an amazing woman who has done all sorts of things around the world. She started a business and is trying to help alleviate poverty in countries all over the world, literally. Um, she also really likes um, monkeys. And so as part of her last trip, as part of a chance to uh, gather a business as well as to work on some other contracts, she was able to go to a sanctuary. And um, I think one of her dreams come through is have a monkey rest on her shoulder uh, because her husband does not want to have one in the house. This was the next best thing. Um, and I, I have had to say a few times, like, we just can't have a monkey in the house because if you know Sarah, you know that she will find a way if I uh, said that was okay to do that. So uh, that has been... That's been fun to, uh, to get that experience and to just see all the different things that she's able to do. Um, my oldest son, Luke, is... I turn this? Oh, hold on. There we go. Uh, he likes to take serious pictures and learn how to drive. Um, I, did, I do give him a chance to take, to take just kind of basic pictures, but he likes these. So uh, Luke is learning to drive, so we get the pleasure of driving around with him in our, our wonderful Buick LeSabre. So we just spent some time yesterday doing that. And uh, so watch out, come around September 15th or so when he's able to get his license um, if he gets it at that point. So uh, he likes to do that. My daughter, Eloise, middle daughter there, she really likes gymnastics. This can't really see that, but she works really hard at this. And she just uh, won Most Improved Gymnast Award this last about a month ago. And um, so she really enjoys that. If you ever uh, take a look at Facebook, you can see some of her videos. And then my daughter Kate uh, also likes gymnastics and a bunch of other things, but she really likes to read. So this is, uh, this is her right here. She has a sign at the side that says, uh, do not disturb. If you want to talk to me, leave an appointment. So she has a little <laughs> board there to uh, write down uh, when you can talk with her. And if you, and you can't see this, but she's reading through the Harry Potter series. We're kind of doing that together. And, um, and yeah, so that's what she enjoys to do is just sit there and and read books for many, many hours on end. So, um, as we get into our passage here today, before we do that, let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for your word. God, thank you that even though it was written thousands of years ago, it still speaks to us here today. Uh, God, and that you are not uh, done speaking to us. You spoke to us through your son, Jesus, and that um, as we read today, help us to see him in the passage and in the situation at hand, uh, despite all the different ways in which uh, we as people here on earth, that your creation has failed you, God. You have not failed us. So be with us as we learn here today. Uh, use my words in this time to illuminate your, uh, your work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so today we're going to be continuing in Genesis 16, picking up near where Spencer left us off last week. So to get us caught up, uh, if this is your first time or if you've missed a few, um, Abram has been specifically called by God in chapter 12 to leave his homeland 
settle in Canaan, and live as the people of God. In practice, though, this has been fraught with difficulty and hardship. Abram has run into a famine where he then fled to Egypt. There, he gave up his wife, Sarai, to a foreign king to kind of save his own skin. Uh, A lot of brokenness and messed up stuff there. He had to rescue his cousin Lot from poor decisions and a, a conflict he found himself in. And in the last chapter, we were reminded that the promise of the offspring more numerous than the stars were resting upon a servant of his household, Eleazar of Damascus. So God then repeats his promise to Abram and shows him in a vision that once again, God will do what he says he will do. In fact, these, in the last uh, chapters, we've seen three separate instances of God and his covenant with Abram. So uh, the first one there is, is the initial call in Genesis 12 to leave uh, his, his, uh, his land of Ur and go to this new land of Canaan. So this initial call and promise to be with him, that he will make him a great nation. So the initial uh, grabbing of Abram from his current context is somewhere new that God is going to be with him. A chapter later, um, he gives a further kind of uh, more elaborate description of the land and where he will live. And he specifically says that your offspring will be more, more numerous than the dust. So if you can, he says if you can count the dust that's on the ground, then you will get a sense of how much offspring you will have. And so this, this imagery of that there's going to be more than he can ever count um, coming from him and his family. And then Genesis 15, uh, we see that, that Abram has some doubts because he's noticing that, hey, this, I just have, I have no children of my own. How is that going to work? And yes, Eliezer of Damascus, he's going to be my heir. Uh, but there's definitely this, this tension of what's, what's God doing here? Um, I, what's going on? And so God reassures him that uh, he will say, your very own son, in verse 3 in there in chapter 15, Spencer talked about last week, will receive the inheritance. So there's, a, there's an even further elaboration of what God is doing for Abram, uh, and he meets him there. So each time God has been in his presence, so right there in the presence of God, Abram has been, uh, and he's given him more details as to what this covenant would look like, answering Abram's questions and calming his fear. So it's now some years later from the initial call and promise, about 10 years uh, from Genesis 12, and uh, where we pick up our, our narrative. So in, um, we'll start with the, the first section, one through six, which really focuses on the immense problem we see right away that just keeps getting worse. Uh, and then God's redemption is seen in the remaining verses. Start with Genesis 6, one through 16, one through six. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So this is a, a story we've probably heard in some context before. Um, the, the name Hagar, I think a lot of people even outside the church would know this, this story and what have happened here at least a little bit. Um, it can, so it can be easy to kind of just forget that. But if we stop for a second, I mean, uh, it's hard to have anybody say the Bible is boring uh, when you read a passage like this. Um, I, 
I, this is kind of a side note, but it reminds me of it. So there was a summer where I had a kind of an early morning job responsibility. I'd come back for lunch, then I'd go off to basketball camp in the afternoon. And my sister, older sister, was living with us. And we just happened to meet back at my parents' house right around noon. And it happened to be when this, uh, and I, I kind of hesitate to admit this, but I will. Uh, we watched Days of Our Lives for about that summer. And we know this, this show has ever, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I, for, uh, for about two months, I watched, we watched this show and it realized how ridiculous they are. But uh, this really, this makes all those storylines just like nothing, like child's play. This is just crazy when you read about it. And so when you look at, at that from this perspective, you, you try to think about what, what is happening here, what is going on, and how can we see what God is doing in the midst of this, this really just messed up situation that uh, has been, uh, been created. And so right away in verse 1, we see the central conflict. It has been about 10 years since the original promise of Genesis 12 and Abram moving to Canaan uh, that this is occurring. So remember that Abram has been, already been in the presence of God, uh, was specifically called, and was able to start to see God's work in his life and in his family. And just back in the previous chapter, we just ended, is where he expressed some doubt as how this is going to work out, and God answered that and gave him uh, a further explanation and a vision to kind of uh, cement that covenant with him, that he would indeed have a son that would then be his, uh, part of his inheritance. So despite this, at this point, we see that it has not happened yet. We find Abram and Sarai in a familiar spot of needing reassurance as to what exactly God is doing. So Sarah had not conceived and was past the usual age of childbearing years. And so the question that they had here then was how was the promise going to happen with no children? It's a repeat of what has just happened in 15 that God responded to. And at this point, though, it, it's, it's good to recognize that in human terms, in fact, it was hopeless. So you, they stopped, and, and, and we start with Sarai, but Abram quickly uh, joins in this, uh, in this conversation, is that they look at where they are at and th- their age and where they uh, have been, and they recognize that if this is up to humanity, to us, we're, that we're doomed. This is not going to work out. So there's nothing wrong with that recognition, right? They recognize the truth that without, without God doing what he's going to do, it is hopeless. So Sarai recognizes this and then begins in the middle of verse 2 to switch from what is truth, that right now God has, uh, has kept her from having children, it's not the time yet, to then kind of going off on her own and proposing a solution of her own reasoning and efforts. In this case, giving Hagar as a second wife for, Abraham, for Abram. And so uh, the human solution in this case was another wife or polygamy. So just a few things here about um, polygamy at this point in the story. Uh, this is the second mention, actually, in Genesis. In uh, Genesis 4, uh, we get a, a description of Lamech, who is uh, uh, this, this violent, um, kind of strife-filled uh, man. It mentions him taking another wife. Um, but this is the first time we get a bit more of a broader glimpse as to what led up to it and then what happens as a result. So polygamy at this point in history was uh, most, the, the little bit that I read about this was um, definitely a, a common thing. It would not have been a, a foreign idea um, in that part of the world to take on another wife. And so we have an example of where uh, God's people are looking to some other solution outside, outside of God's promise, outside of what should have happened to find their solution. And so while we don't get an explicit condemnation of the practice of polygamy, we do see by the result, so just what we just read here, that we have an example of the Bible describing a phenomenon and not prescribing it. We are told what happened in that situation, not what we should do in that situation. I think it's also interesting in looking earlier, just back in, in the previous promises there, especially in Genesis 15, 
where uh, God then says in verse 4 that you will have a son, your very own son, he doesn't specifically mention Sarai. And so it, when you look at that, I, I think that the, what I think about is that Abram um, would, have, would have thought, um, if he would have thought it was acceptable to take another wife or two wives or whatever to, to have a son, why would there have been any problem at all? You just say, oh, that's, if Sarah, it doesn't work out with Sarah. I've got a you know, whole, he's, got, he's a very wealthy man. He's got a lot of uh, women in his, um, in his uh, kind of extended family, his, his, uh, his um, area. And so this would not have been a problem. But he's, he is conflicted in verse 15, or in chapter 15, because he recognized that's not what God's plan is at that, that, that point. God has promised him an heir, and so it is assumed that it's going to be Sarai, his wife. So again, I, I think that that points to the fact that even uh, the polygamy right there is, is not, this is not, yay, this is a good solution. This is a fallen human solution to what God, um, what God was going to do. All right, so back, back to what we're, uh, we're doing here in this story. So Sarai proposes the solution for an heir, and Abram listens and quickly agrees. And so if we go to judging both of their, character, or their behaviors right here, you might kind of have a lot of questions and, and uh, kind of look down on them for what they did. Um, but one thing is that we remember that it's been a very long time since God's promise. So even though he has reassured them, um, we definitely can understand what it might be like uh, in, this, in this situation to have this much uh, time waiting. So obviously the right answer would be for Abram to take the, um, uh, the reassurances that God had just provided for him in the previous chapter and to remind Sarai in this moment of crisis where she was not convinced that anything was going to happen uh, to be able to take that opportunity to, to shepherd his wife and to guide her and to lead her um, and to, to remind her that God is going to fulfill his promises. But how many times and in how many ways are we just like Abram? We, we know the promise of God, what he's already done and what he will, will, will do in the future, and yet we forget, whether it's in short little things or in larger things, that we, uh, we get lost in the details of our life. So we know the promises of God, and yet we get impatient, we doubt, and they're t- willing to take a path that we deem necessary to accomplish the task. And Abram was impatient and as such lost sight of the goal and approved of Sarai's plan. I think it's also worth noting uh, that his failure to lead in this situation with his family um, in this, this confusing time for her hurts not only himself but also her in the long run as well. We'll see that a bit later in the narrative, not on this chapter in chapter 21. So God graciously gave him an opportunity to get an assurance of the covenant in the previous chapter and yet he did not take that into the situation with Sarai to reassure her. This is similar, I think, to, a little bit to Genesis 3. If you remember in Genesis 3, uh, the fall where we have the initial, kind of, uh, the initial fall of humanity, and the, the first, what, what is the, the way the serpent tempts is what's his first line, his, his entry into the story says what? Did what? Did God, did God really say this? He's casting some doubt as to what's going to happen, and so this theme comes up again is that God's people ask themselves that question that has started with the fall of man. Did God really say X, Y, and Z, this truth, truth? And so that's, that's what starts the same uh, kind of progression. So how much strife and angst do we experience and sinfulness and, and consequence of that sinfulness as a result of us not remembering and knowing and clinging to the truths of God in our own life and, and, and looking to each other to help us out um, in that? And so um, initially, at least for the first half of the verse in, uh, in verse 4, it does seem like things went well. Hagar conceives a child just as God has promised. Look, their decisions brought about what was supposed to happen, right? Uh, Yes, but then right away we start to see how taking matters into their own hands leads to greater problems. So right away after the conception of Hagar, once a servant, now a second wife, brought into this situation as a result of this doubt and impatience, 
she finds herself prideful of her own fertility and looks at contempt at the, her mistress and the uh, other wife, Sarai. The result, Sarai brings this concern before Abram, this strife that's now entered their household, who now seems unconcerned for, his, uh, for what happens in this situation with Hagar. He's very passive, kind of hands-off with, with both of them, uh, similar to how Adam just kind of, when God comes back to him and he throws Eve under the bus and says, look, the woman you gave to me did this thing. He's kind of like, I, you deal with it, Sarai. You figure it out. This was your idea. I'm just, I'm just kind of here. I said, yeah, but whatever, uh, and stays out of it. Sarai then begins to treat uh, Hagar harshly, and understandably, she flees the situation. So this, this sinful act that started with a doubting of what God was doing leads to all sorts of things. Jealousy. Uh, jealousy between the wives, between, um, and we'll see this, this play out a bit more later too, uh, contempt, kind of a, almost a hatred uh, one to the other, both directions. This general strife in the, in the household and cruelty. Sarai is, uh, is cruel to Hagar to the point where she leaves, and, and at this, this point, leaving this, the safety and, and the community that they have uh, is... Uh, very likely a, a death sentence if she leaves that, but it, it, she's saying that's better than staying around where she is right there. So at a mere six verses, we see this cascading consequences of sin that, of the impatience and lack of faith of, on Abram and Sarai's part. They wanted to fix the problems themselves, and the process hurt their marriage and another person who never needed to be involved in the first place. Human solutions to bring about what we know only God can do are bound to fail and drive us further from him and alienate us from each other. But, thankfully, as we will see, all is not lost. God is not absent in this situation or unconcerned with its outcome. Let's continue. Genesis 16, 7 through 16. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone. Uh, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So a few things to, uh, to note here um, in this, this passage. First of all, is that Hagar is not forgotten in this passage. Um, take a step back and just kind of look to say who are the, the main players here. Hagar enters into this just right away in verse 16, and, and uh, it could just be that through all we just said that this is the result of sinful decisions and impatience and lack of trust, that she could have just been kind of left off to the wayside, uh, not need to be mentioned at all, um, but she's not. In fact, the next part of the story, we go to her, we leave who has been the main parts of the story, Abram and Sarai, um, for a moment to go and address what's going on here with Hagar. So we see a young, pregnant, scared, second wife of Abram alone in the wilderness. So we, a couple of key things here. We see that 
that the Lord sent a messenger and found her, went out and found her where she was by this water in the wilderness and knows her name, calls her by name, gives her an encouragement, instruction, and some prophecy about her son and her family. So in God sending this messenger to her, um, she did not have any sort of plan or way out. Uh, she just left. So this terrible, strifeful situation that it results from all this uh, human solutions to the problem, and she just leaves uh, without a, a plan in, in mind. And, and like I said, this is probably uh, essentially a death sentence because out in the wilderness, you don't have your, your family, your people. Um, she's pregnant. She's a, a woman alone. This is not a situation that she'd want to be in, but uh, she's kind of weighing it and saying, this is better than where I was. That's how bad uh, things were. It did not have a plan. And God moved towards her in this point of despair and distress. Um, secondly, is that Hagar is a foreigner. Um, so she is not part of the promise of Israel. In fact, um, here in, um, in, in the, the covenant, we see some similarities when this, uh, this promise that the angel gives to her about, uh, about her family. He does say that you'll bear a son uh, and you'll call his name Ishmael. He also says that uh, your offspring will be uh, multiplied so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So a similar kind of idea, and yet not going to be the, this people of Israel. It's going to be uh, there's going to be strife and anguish, but, but there's a promise there. There's a promise that she will survive and she will, uh, she will begin this, this large and important family. Um, so God reaches out to her and encourages her, even in her distress, as to what is going on. So the promise she has given about her son and family is one that both reflects God's hearing of her plight as well as the consequences of the faithlessness of Sarai and Abram. So again, with these similarities between the two covenants, it is distinctly different. But this is enough for Hagar, and she ends up going back to and listening to the angel uh, to return back to the family, even though there's this strife. So uh, she's able to get enough of a, a confirmation of where she is to go back and to listen to the instruction. And we know that when she returns, she must have uh, talked about this experience with Abram and, and Sarai too, because it says right away in verse 15, then when Hagar bore Abram a son, uh, that Abram called his name Ishmael. So she must have recounted this, this uh, encounter in um, by the well here uh, to be able to uh, have Abram then respond in this way. So at this point in our, in our narrative, uh, what we have seen so far is that <clears throat> impatience leads to lack of faith. Um, that God's timing is something that we do not understand, uh, definitely, as human beings. We can look to our own life and look to lives around us that we don't we don't really know uh, all the details of what God is doing. And so when we try to put our own efforts into solving what only God can do, uh, that's going to cause problems. Even after 10 years, God was not absent, but Abram and Sarai got lost in the details of life. Maybe understandably so, but nevertheless they did. They turned away from God's promise and took matters into their own hands. Again, that phrase, did God really say, did he really say that he was going to give us a, a nation that was from my own son? Uh, did he really say that he's going to that he said not to eat from this tree? Did he really say, put any promise of God in there? That is the central temptation of our lives as we look uh, to what, what draws us away from him. So uh, that, that is what we see in this uh, story as well. That sin has unforeseen consequences. So God definitely uh, redeems this situation. We'll look more into that in a minute. But there are consequences that go far beyond the initial, the initial act, the initial um, taking of Hagar as a second wife and uh, not listening or trusting God's promises. Their family and relationship is forever altered. Uh, again, we'll see this play out further along in Genesis in the life of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and their children. Um, this, is not, this is not totally done with. Uh, while God redeems it, there are consequences to sin. 
that affects both of these lines. And in this section, that God does not abandon those who are in distress or those who have fallen short of his requirements. Hagar could have just been a side note in the story, that Hagar was there, they made a mistake, hey, let's move on. But God didn't leave her lost in the wilderness. He sent a messenger to bring her back and reconcile her with her family. Um, also, just as a kind of a, a side note here, I forgot to mention earlier, is that um, she names this well, so this life-giving well uh, where God met her. Uh, she named it that uh, the God who, it means the God who, the well of the living one who sees me, recognizing that God did not just leave her there, but found her, reached out to her, and grabbed her and brought her back. Uh, Abram and Sarai, too, at this point, are not abandoned to their fate. Um, they, do, they do not do what they should have, and yet God doesn't go back on his promise to them and their descendants as well. This is one of many points already in Genesis. We're at chapter 16, where God could have just kind of thrown his hands up and be like, I'm, I'm done with you people. Uh, I, I'm, this is just ridiculous how many times you mess up. I mean, like I said, chapter 15, we have a reassurance of what God is doing, and already in 16, we have this soap opera of events that's going on. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't abandon his people. He sticks to his promises to us. And so in, the, in that context, I think this is what we, what we can see. But as anywhere in the Bible, we want to look and see what other places that we can look at in the light of the, the New Testament where we can get greater understanding of the biblical narrative and our place in salvation history. This is not just a history lesson for us to kind of learn some life lessons, but also tells us about where we are in Christ and what are some things that we can see in light of the New Testament. And so there are two in specific I want to look at um, here where uh, this is mentioned or alluded to, um, beginning with Genesis, or sorry, Galatians 4, 21 to 25. This is Paul's letter to a church uh, that are struggling with some things that we'll, uh, we'll see here. It says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Uh, so a little bit of context here before getting back to our, our story is that Paul is writing this and using this story, this actual uh, account that happened um, to help kind of sort out a mess that's happening in the Galatian church. You have the church that started, was the, considered a kind of a sect of Judaism, um, but then now is spreading to a world, uh, a, a, the Greek, Roman, um, Hellenistic culture around. And so you have churches that are a mix of uh, Jews who have converted to Christianity and then outsiders, uh, just Gentiles is a general catch-all term, that are now in the church. And they're kind of going back and forth. And what does that mean? Uh, do you have to still stick to the old laws? And Paul is saying, no, and he uses this, um, uh, this story of Hagar and Ishmael as a way to point that out. He's trying to help them understand what it means to be under the new law of Christ, that of grace and faith, as opposed to the law of slavery, and that is works or human effort to solve the problem. In this exhortation, he uses the account of Hagar and Sarah and their offspring, Ishmael and Isaac, to show these two different covenants. The old, as represented allegorically by Hagar and Ishmael, is the one about human law and effort that ends up resulting in slavery and exile. So um, we'll learn more about their story here again a bit later in Genesis, but that is what he's, it's a picture. And like all allegories, is there's parts that don't match, but in this case it does. It represents human effort led to, the, led to Ishmael and all the, the, the strife and slavery and exile that came, that's going to come about as a result of that. 
The new, represented by Sarah and Isaac, is the result of God's promise. Remember that Sarah's, Sarai's womb was barren. There was no life. And it was only through God's miraculous work that offspring was produced. Abram, Sarai, and Hagar's work did produce an offspring, but not one of faith and not one uh, who inherited the promises of God. What we do to make the promises of God happen in us or in the world without him will ultimately fail, no matter how good they look at the initial onset. Hagar and Ishmael represent failed human works, and even though they had a son after this human striving, he was not part of the promise. Only God could do that. Now, the second instance where we might uh, come to mind when we think about what is going on here in the, in the second part of our, uh, of our verse in Genesis, or our chapter in Genesis, is where you have a, a foreigner, a woman, uh, by a well of water in which God sends out a messenger uh, to and sends a message to them. And so in uh, John 4, if you're thinking about that, is uh, the Samaritan woman uh, by the well where Jesus meets her um, and says, has some similar interactions. Let's read there from John 4, 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, uh, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or to come here to draw water. So Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well and also gives her some instruction, give me a drink, and a promise about what this, this drink will do for her. And yes, there's some confusion about what, uh, what he is meaning versus what she is meaning, but she eventually gets to that point, at least close to it in the next, we won't go too much in that, but she talks about in the next verse how uh, she asks other people, could this be the Christ? Come see this person who could be the Christ. So she's, she's heading that direction. So through their dialogue, he reveals himself as the water that satisfies our ultimate thirst and that we'll never be thirsty again if we drink uh, from the water that he provides. Hagar's visit from the angel gives us a precursor example of this type of meeting with God. In both cases, a foreigner, someone outside of the promise of God, is in a place of distress. Now, Hagar kind of knew it more. She's kind of near, nearer to death uh, than the woman at the well, but uh, spiritually speaking, the woman at the well is also at, at death's door. Right? She, is, she is separated from God. He, he brings out some other things in her life, but she represents this person who is without Christ, without this water, is, is dead spiritually and ultimately physically as well. In the first case, there's a reassurance of God hearing and knowing their plight, that she will indeed have a, father, or have a son and he will father a nation. In the second case, the Samaritan woman is instructed to drink from a well of life that will never run dry or let her be thirsty again. The salvation from death in the wilderness that is offered to Hagar is more fully shown in the salvation from eternal death offered to the woman at the well. Jesus, the living water, the spring of life, is revealing himself as one who is offered to everyone, even those outside the initial covenantal Israel. In both cases, God sent his message to those outside the kingdom to get a chance at life. 
and blessing and covenant. So looking at Genesis 16 now, from the light of this new covenant reality, a little bit we see in Galatians as well as uh, here in John, I believe there are four truths that we can see more clearly in light of the gospel, this side of the cross. And one is that we are impatient like Abram and Sarai, but thankfully God is patient with us. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this, look at this, this impatience that's going on, is that uh, there kind of gets at the, the root of, they want this plan to keep moving forward, and they're uh, expressing this kind of doubt, and, and God is patient with them. They are not patient in the story. God is patient with them. God is not patient, or they are not patient uh, with God. We are inherently forgetful people, and our hearts wander and lose sight of the astounding promises of God all the time. This is why we need to read the Bible, why we need to um, come to church and remind each other in our everyday lives and uh, at, you know, at bare minimum here on Sunday morning, but also throughout the week and just in our conversations and our families with our friends, our community groups, that what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. Because we will face times Sometimes uh, daily, well, we, we doubt, even in small ways, the promises of God. Um, and we need each other, we need the church to help encourage us in those moments to remind us. Do what Abram failed to do with his wife and remind her of the promises that God has, has already done and fulfilled and that we'll, we'll see in a greater uh, reality in the future. Um, I, this is something that I personally struggle with, even in, in small instances where whether it's a, a class that I'm teaching that's just kind of uh, not going the way that I would like it. And uh, then all of a sudden, you, the, like, your mind can go in places where uh, we know it doesn't belong because we think, like, this isn't working out the way that I want it to, and this is what God said was going to happen, or I'm, this is supposed to be this way, and we kind of can get in this, this mindset where we need others. We need uh, the Word of God. We also need the, the church to help remind us of the truths um, that He has given us. We need to pull back a little bit and to see the broader picture of history. Um, again, if we, if we are quick to judge Abram and Sarai's behavior, think 10 years from this promise. And actually, little spoiler alert, it's another uh, over 10 years before uh, the promised uh, Isaac is actually born. And so um, you, this is a long time to wait. Uh, so if we are impatient, I, I'm a very, I can get very impatient um, lots of different ways. Traffic is one of them. Uh, so like, just think of all the ways in our life that we can get impatient about things. And yet, um, and God is faithful with us. So we need to see places in which um, God has, we need to constantly remind ourselves of that um, in our own lives. We have such a short attention span, um, I think even culturally now, I, I would say that too, like in the way we kind of approach lots of different things, we kind of want an immediate quick fix to stuff, um, where we, um, and even in our own prayer lives, that we see like, okay, God has done this one thing, what's the next need that I bring before him? Instead of looking back to and saying, man, what has God done uh, already in the past? Um, James gets at this a little bit, I don't have this up here, but it just says in James 5, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Um, Colossians also just reminds us, too, that um, what he has done. So remind us of the truth of the gospel, that we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his, his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's this, there's this reminder of where we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, and if you're not, then an invitation to, to be in that camp. Um, secondly, uh, in living in 2016, we know the end and key points of this story, even if the individual details are not revealed until they happen to us. 
I mentioned earlier my daughter, Kate, that really likes to read. Um, I found out just a couple of weeks ago that, so we're reading through, I can't remember which one, which one it was in Harry Potter, but she was, she told me, or maybe she told Sarah, I can't remember, that she read, she read the last page pretty quickly uh, in reading the book. Now, I, I, I don't do this, and maybe depending on if you think this is a good idea or not, like I understand this concept, and I asked her about it, and she's like, well, I, I don't want to get the whole ending, but I like to find out a couple of things, so I kind of just have that reassurance, or what, you know, just knows what's going to happen. And then, and then I was like, well, doesn't that like kind of spoil some of the book? She's like, no, I just, now I need to know kind of how I get to that point. Like, you know kind of the, the main points of the ending, and then how does the story get there? And whether or not that's a, you know, a good reading technique or not, I think that as, as believers, we have that perspective. We, we know the end of the story. We know the key points along that journey, even though we don't get an exact itinerary of what God is doing <clears throat> along every, uh, every single point. And this is, this is difficult for us. This is, I think, strikes that impatience idea where we need each other and we need uh, to be diving into the Word and reminding ourselves daily of its truth because um, when we get into a very, very difficult time, uh, even small to, to large things, um, that is very difficult and yet, we know that God is faithful to us. Um, again, I, I, I saw this in really stark contrast in living, uh, we lived for a brief period of time in Haiti. And um, as uh, some of you may have met, our, our friend uh, Maxo is a pastor there. And it just in like getting to know him and his family and what he's experienced, and just Haitian Christians in general, uh, living, that's kind of our immediate context of living in a place that is um, so just, there's so many things to kind of be worrying about. I mean, we think of like our political mess that's kind of happening right now in election season and all these things that kind of worry us. It's like you take that and multiply it by about 50 and you get like a Haitian election in terms of the amount of different, like it's not political candidates are just kind of really messed up, but then they like kill each other's followers. And there's, it's just, it's a really, really messed up situation. And when you, when you are there and you're in it, you, just, you feel that. And yet you go to, you, you talk to, to Christians in Haiti and they, and they just seem to have a level of faithfulness that, that definitely uh, exceeded mine, really because of the fact that they've experienced so many more hardships and they've seen God's faithfulness through it all. And so this is, this is hard for us in some way that we need each other to remind us of these truths. Um, we know what he's done, we know what God has already done, and that he will follow through with what's been promised. But that doesn't mean we get an exact itinerary of how every detail plays out. And that is difficult for us. Uh, Philippians 1.4 reminds us that uh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Hold on to truths like that as you look at difficult areas of your life or times of doubt and frustration. Uh, thirdly, is that uh, despite Abram's failures and lack of faith in this and other situations, he is still called the father of our faith. We can identify with Abram both in his sinfulness uh, and how he was led astray, but also in that when he is referenced by Paul and the New Testament authors, he is rightly called the man of faith. Romans 4.3 4, uh, 4, says, and also in Genesis 15, just earlier, uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He did falter and sin, and yet he believed, and that is what matters. Our standing before God is not based on our own plans, efforts, and good works. If so, this story that we just read would go on to say that this story of Hagar and of Ishmael was then the way that God had started the promised nation of Israel. That would have been how it happened. Through Abram and Sarai figuring it out, doing what they were supposed to do, what was necessary to make this happen. They made it happen. But instead, we see this picture of this soap opera as being, no, this is where they were faithless. This is where they had made tons of mistakes and where they were sinful and God still redeemed 
that and kept his promise. So as we'll see later in the story, uh, pretty soon here, is that God fulfills his promise to make a dead womb come to life. Not because of their plans and their works, but because um, of God's work in their life. Abram is praised for his faith, not his works. We too will fail and fall short of God's righteousness with our own plans and works and ways to get to salvation. Our own dead religion is what it is. It will not get us to the salvation. But through faith in Christ and what he has accomplished for us on the cross, we obtain the inheritance of salvation. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we get that peace. That's where we get uh, the answer to the problem that we have, not through our own works. And finally, God seeks us and calls us to believe. God hears us in our distress and rescues us through the work of Christ. He is the prime mover, and there is hope for all who call upon his name. Even the physical descendants of Ishmael, kind of a a neat uh, aspect of this is that, yes, they are a separate line in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the promised people of Israel and Ishmael's line and huge family uh, are not one and the same. And yet, if you look kind of fast forward through history, the descendants, the physical descendants of Ishmael can be grafted into the promised people of Abraham through the work of Jesus Christ. So talking about a big picture view of a few thousand years, we don't, we don't ever get that perspective, but we have that here written for us in the Bible. We even get a glimpse in Revelation 7, uh, 7, 9, where it talks about that uh, believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be worshiping before the Lamb of God. Uh, and we are those foreigners. We are waiting, for the, waiting by the water for our salvation to come. Ephesians, 12, Ephesians 2.12 says that, Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where we were. We were cast out. We were removed from the promise. It seemed hopeless. It is hopeless without Christ. It seemed hopeless for Hagar and the Samaritan. And yet God, in his compassion for all, and has compassion for all and wills that none would perish. Even Abram and Sarai in the covenant uh, had failed, and yet God was not, uh, did not abandon them to their failure. We are called to have faith in the one who brings new life in wombs, restores what was broken, goes out and seeks the lost, and is able to mend our sinful hearts. Our efforts to do this of our own good works will have disastrous consequences. So let us do the one thing that is necessary, and that's believe. This is the message of salvation and the work of God. In John 6, 28 and 29, he says, his disciples are asking Jesus, what must we do? What's the work that we should do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him in who he has sent. Believe in the one who makes barren wombs give life. Believe in the one who seeks the lost in the wilderness. Believe in the one who has promised to be with us and to save us. Not only with words, but in action and deed, through the gift of his son Jesus on the cross for us. Believe that here today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word here uh, this morning. God, I pray for uh, each one of us here today that we would be um, encouraged and challenged uh, to know, uh, look back at the promises that you've already fulfilled um, through the Bible and through the story that we just uh, read and, and other places, as well as in the story of our own lives and those of the, our fellow believers around us. Help us to encourage one another with those words here um, today and as we go forth and know that we, uh, we have the privilege of, of seeing the end of the story, the end of history. Uh, God, pray for anybody right now who is specifically just wondering what this means for them. I pray that they would uh, you'd work in their hearts and they would come and, and talk to one of us and to be able to, uh, to come to, to belief and, um, 
yeah, just to know that you are for them and that you've given your life uh, for them. God, pray for the rest of our time here today. In Jesus' name, amen.